Welcome to another episode of Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith. This podcast has been dedicated and committed to sharing courageous stories of men and women that have overcome adversity and challenges in their lives to actually thrive. You know, no matter how far down you've gone, no matter what you're dealing with, there's a way out. And by having people share the stories of what they've overcome in their lives, uh, we're here to give you hope. And, and today, I'm actually really excited and I feel very privileged to have in studio with us in Westlake, uh, Ryan Leaf, just a remarkable human being I've gotten to know over the last few months. Uh, I've followed his journey, been a fan, not, not, not just of what he's accomplished in his life, but more importantly, what he's done for other people. Uh, it's been a bit of a role model for me and my recovery. And so welcome, Ryan, to Overcome Out Loud, man. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, nice little setup here. You've got the producer. You're just, you're, you're, you know, I do my podcast like, uh, with a microphone in a, in a closet, so this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, we try to make you feel comfortable. But, and by the way, if you haven't listened to Bust, uh, I think we've got 10 episodes now completed. That's it. There's yeah. just 10 episodes. It's the, it's the arc. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think we just hit a million downloads. So Yeah, if you haven't listened to it, and, and we're going we're gonna to go through Ryan's story, but the details of what you went through, I think there's two things that I really got, and I listened to, to all of the episodes is your self-reflection. You know, the things that you realized about yourself, I think you talked at one point about, and now as a football analyst, analyzing your second season, what you would say about the player that you would become. And you've got such really good insights into what you went through and, and how you've used that to, to change. Um, it's powerful, especially a lot of the details of, of how dark the days got. You know, I think origin stories are important. I think when we, when we talk about hitting adversity in our lives, some people can, can blame mommy, daddy, trauma, and drama, and, and we'll talk a little bit about trauma, but. Um, you, you grew up with a really good mom and dad and some and good siblings in, in Montana. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be young Ryan Leaf? It, it was it was great, right? Incredibly loving family, extended family, grandparents, uh, aunts and uncles, cousins, everything like that. So it was it was wonderful. I was I was the oldest of all the grandchildren. Uh, I was the oldest of our of our three boys in our family, and uh, I was incredibly athletic, incredibly talented. Um, at, and I don't know why it, my dad didn't force me or push me to anything. It just, it organically took, took, took place. And, uh, I found out pretty quickly that I was just, I was just better than everybody else. And, uh, and I love to compete and I love to win. I think that's the biggest thing in all this. I just love to win. And, uh, um, that was probably my first drug of choice, I think is winning, um, and competing. And so as, as I grew up, I found that I was in a town where, um, where their heroes weren't the Fab Five, weren't Jalen Rose, um, Chris Webber, you know, Juwan Howard, those guys, that, that was not their, their model of, of who you should be. And that's who I wanted to be, right? I wanted to be one of those guys um, so bad. So that meant I needed to get out of that town and... Um, I just didn't know any other way than to just, you know, crash through walls uh, to get it done. And it, 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 it put, you know, it um, pushed people the wrong way, especially in my hometown. And it made my mom fearful of, of what people thought of her son in turn, what they thought about her and, and being a parent and raising said son. So, um, Early on, when I was a kid, it was it was it was a wonderful childhood, um, but then I think you know around 13 years old or so, uh, it got really dark, 
Um, and I, I don't remember really much of uh, anything enjoyable um, late in middle school or through high school uh, other than me being able to compete and me being able to play sports. And when you, when you played sports, I think you know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about is the way you played sports. It wasn't, I mean, you, want, you were competitive, but you wanted to exert your will on people. There was some fire inside of you, some way that you were defining yourself, that not just to be the best, but I'm going to show you the best. I'm going to let you know I know I'm the best. I'm going to let you know that. And, and, and it almost was like, and you can speak to it obviously much better, about the feeling of inside about who you become on your way to greatness is so important, right? And the principles and the character that you exhibit. And, and there was a part of you that just couldn't be you, you know, that, that you wanted to have fun and you wanted to play well and be seen as playing well. But there was like this external pressure to not be that good or to not show how good you were. It felt like there was a there was a struggle in there for you, even at a young age. Well, I became real resentful. Yeah. You know, I think that's the big, I became really resentful of the, the, the critical, uh, the, the critical judgment of, of me, like as a person, because they didn't like how I behaved on a basketball court or something like that. And so my response was to, you know, beat you down and embarrass you in the process. And that's how I won, because I wasn't going to win you over um, a, as a player. I wasn't given the respect as a player because they didn't like my behavior or my attitude. So uh, they didn't like that I wore my shorts down to my knees or my socks up to my uh, mid-calf mid or, or gold shoes. I mean, it was just so um, overblown over nothing. Um, they just wanted me to be uh, be a good athlete, be their best athlete, and, and shut up and just do that. And uh, I didn't see a way out of that small town if that was who I was, right? I had to, like somebody had to see me somewhere. Kids didn't get recruited from Montana. Um, and so that, that, was a, that was a big part of, of who I thought I needed to be to get to that place. And so in turn, I, I became extremely resentful of the, the people because I was just a kid and they were all adults, right? Yeah, And that's, that's that's the difference in all of this is like, I was supposed to behave as an adult when I didn't have the coping skills or understanding really, um, or life skills to deal with things in a positive and healthy way. Instead, I just, I, I dealt with it the only way I knew how to. And, uh, and was shamed a lot of the time. And so that's where that the shaming aspect of it kind of came in. Yeah, the, the, the shame and guilt and the resentment are, 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 are a common thread through this, this whole story as we get to the end. And, and I've heard you describe, you know, as you proceeded through your career, that you were, you know, seen as a big imposing guy. You were always tall, you were always athletic. But, but inside, you, you, you had a little bit of an inferiority complex. You kind of talk, talked about yourself being a maniac with an inferiority complex. Had that developed it? How did you feel about yourself even, even when you were competing? Did you like yourself? Did you see yourself in a positive light? Or was it just, I've got to achieve something to get somewhere? Now, when I walked across those white lines or across that line on a basketball court or on a baseball diamond, like I was, I was supremely confident in who I was um, because that's what I needed to be. Once I walked off the court, um, I was incredibly self-conscious around, you know, super skinny, uh, I had big butt teeth. I'd been made fun of, fun of about that for a long time in my life, um, and then I was kind of, uh, kind of grew up on the. A lot of people talk about the wrong side of the tracks mentality. We had a river that that flowed right down the middle of our hometown, and like, 
the west side of that river was was seen as different than the, the east side of the river. And uh, we lived on the east side of the river and, and some of those kids, um, and kids can be brutal. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of them were probably projecting a lot and, but I just, I ate, ate it like bullets. Um, and so I, you know, I wasn't, well, we always see in films and things like that, you know, the popular jocks portrayed on, yeah, starting quarterback. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't a popular guy. Um, you know, I was kind of an introvert off the court and an extrovert on it, which is the juxtaposition of that is, is crazy, right? So how is that possible? Well, we see it all the time. I became really close friends with Dennis Rodman. Um, and that dude was completely different person on the court and off the court, right? He had this persona to get what he needed to and compete. And then off it, he was just so uh, self-conscious and introverted, which is which is, I think, is kind of where I got the idea from when, when my professional career came to came to fruition. Yeah, I think this is, you know, and, and, and I think you can be a big help to a lot of young athletes because I think they attach their worth to these outcomes. They attach their identity to the sport they play. And so, as you said, when you walked on a baseball diamond or onto a football field you were, you were, or, or a basketball court, you were Ryan Leaf, the competitor, and you knew you could dominate. But that wasn't who you were. That was just what you did. And when you attach your worth to these outcomes, and, and we'll, we'll talk about how that kind of, played you, you know, in terms of the way you saw yourself, you can lose a lot because you're not always going to beat I me. Mean, you got to go to school. You got to go to the dance on Saturday night. You got to hang out with, I mean, there's a life out there that's outside of those things. And if you attach your worth to those things and your confidence to those things, then when you're not doing it, then you're not. And, and that's a real trap for kids, don't you think? It is because I then had to, like, if I was in public or if I was uh, interacting, I would portray that, that kind of arrogant cockiness that I that I really could use on a, a in a competitive form in real life and that just I mean that just puts people off you know they don't want to they don't want that kind of person to to be around them you know there's certain people that eat that up but but really that's that just seems you just get a bunch of eye rolls when you're trying to be that person in a public setting Especially, and at least for me, you know, I think we have these two vows, right? The things we believe about ourselves and the way we behave. And when those two things are in alignment, you see one person, you see one Charlie Smith, one Ryan Leaf. But when we believe certain things about ourselves and then we're behaving in another way, it creates this kind of integrity gap where we're living this double life. It's like, I'm showing you I'm this guy, but really inside I'm not. And probably, you know, blocks us from asking for help or being authentic with people oh, as we grow up. Completely. Like, I grew up in Montana where there's this just amazing cowboy culture right that yeah. exists where there's you show no weakness or vulnerability and then i i spent the rest of my uh, adolescence and then early adulthood in in locker rooms where that of course was not seen as strength in any way shape or form so if i'd never seen anybody asking for help or viewed it because it certainly wasn't on or portrayed in tv or movies or anything like that how would i know to do it and how would I know to go about it? I wouldn't. And so therefore you, you know, it's, it's a defense mechanism then, however you need to do to survive. And this is why I think your podcast has a million downloads and this is why your story is so powerful because, you know, a lot of us stay a victim of our story and, and I did for a lot of years, you know, I think up until about the age of 42, I was a real victim of my story and I lived in my story and, you know, the gun to my head at 19, the violent abuse and the Viking that I took to numb the pain and, 
what was me. And then I finally started to realize that I had a part in all that. And, and I think one of the greatest gifts you've given, there's a lot of gifts you've given the world, but one of them is your incredible insight into what caused what happened to happen and what you're doing differently now. The next thing that, that kind of happens is we get this destination disease, right? We start thinking that when we get some, okay, I'm here now, but when I get to, when I get that division one, I know I'm going to play division one football. I'm that good. I'm, I'm going to play college football. It's just a matter of where you have a lot of people, I'm sure, recruiting you and scouting you. And there's a lot of pageantry in that that's feeding that ego. Um, and and was, there, was there a part of you that just wanted to get there and, and that that would be kind of the next kind of success mark for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, that. My, my goal was to get out of that small town and get out of that state um, because it also made me feel bigger like, and better than, you know, all the people in, in my home state because I'm, I'm getting out of there and I'm going to make it uh, bigger than all of you stuck in this, in this podunk town mentality, right? That's, that's what pushed me. So, um, and once I started getting recruited by everybody, then that, you know, that, that just inflated the ego more. Like, I, I've, always, I've always told you this. I've always told you how good I am. Now you're going to see it, and you're going to see me flourish, and you're going uh, to be jealous, I guess is the best way to put it. And so I just knew, like, like, I wanted to be a professional athlete, and this was the next step to get there, was to go to a Division One school and um, dominate there as well. Yeah, that, that narrative, you know, when I hear you talk about it, it's like this prove myself instead of just be myself. It's like, I love playing sports. I'm really good at it. I'm a good teammate. I got a gift to throw the football. People are going to love that. And I can't wait to go help a team win. And I've heard you talk as you've reflected on some of the narratives, you know, um, in, in your past. That, but really, there was this big prove myself part of it versus be myself, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's with every athlete. I, I, I mean, it's rare that I think somebody uh, doesn't feel... Um, less than because you always start at the bottom of the totem pole. It's rare that when you're a freshman, you get, you know, you, you can hand the keys to the car. It, it, it's happening more and more now because I mean, guy, kids are so much more talented uh, and, or coaches are more open-minded to allowing young players to play without much experience. And so that was never the case. So I always had to prove myself, I felt. It, 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 immediately when I got got on campus at, at Washington State, you've just been wooed and uh, and treated like the end-all be-all in the recruiting process. And then when you want to show up on campus, it's, you know, it's a different story, right? You most likely are going to redshirt. Coach has got a season to, to deal with and win and take care of. He can't worry about the, the freshman who, um, you know, who's going to just be in the weight room all year long, really. And... Uh, and oh, how that how that has changed because of the transfer portal nowadays. Like you have to recruit, and recruit and recruit. You have to recruit your own players when they're when they're on your roster, even. So that that was a big change, and that was kind of a culture shock for me. I walked in and I'm like, whoa, you just told me I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and now I'm, you know, relegated to uh, six a.m. workouts in the weight room, and then scout team quarterback on the practice field, and that was it. And that's not how I envisioned this going. I've heard Tony Gonzalez talk about his second year when he let the league drop passes about how, you know, going from, from Berkeley and this coveted, you know, kind of all-American football player to the pressure of the NFL. And, and I think it's another lesson that, that you're so good at teaching is as you get, as you elevate, as you get to that next level, 
Now everybody was good in high school. Everybody was the captain of the team. Everybody was a three-year varsity starter. I mean, you're, you've now become, once again, one of many. Yep. And um, so when I found out pretty quickly that I better start working, you know, and outwork guys. And that was never an issue for me, right, outworking anybody. Um, things came easy to me, don't get me wrong, but it was because I worked my tail off. That's why it became easy. It's like if you're studying for tests, the test isn't hard if you've worked your, your tail off to study for everything and know the answers. And that's exactly what I tried to do. And before long, to your point, where we were all pretty even coming in, I rose on that pedestal once again because my talent just outshined uh, everybody else's. And I became the starting quarterback. We won a championship. I, was, I led the nation in passing. I was a Heisman Trophy finalist. Uh, we played in the Rose Bowl for the national championship, and most and most people considered me to be either the first or second pick in the NFL draft if I would have chose to to leave early. Yeah, I think I, I heard you talk a little bit about that Heisman run and and, and being in in the, at the ceremony with your dad and, and the experience of seeing your dad kind of really witnessing his son achieving this one. But there was a party that that was wasn't present or it sounded like there was a, a moment where you were you were connected to that and feeling really good but not feeling worthy of it. Oh no, I, I, I felt like I deserved to be there. I felt like I deserved to win it. Um, but the coolest part about the whole deal was experiencing it with my, that, that may be the, out of everything in my life that football or sports have given me, that may be the coolest thing um, that I was ever awarded uh, an opportunity was to be a Heisman finalist because I represented Washington State, my coaches, my teammates, I got a chance to talk about them all. I knew I wasn't gonna win, so I had no pressure on me to to, to worry about. My family was there. My dad got to experience. It's it's so funny to think about because I'm so I'm, I'm so much older uh, than my dad was when he had his kids. So I thought my dad was super old at the time, right? But he's pretty much exactly the same age I am right now when we're at the Heisman. Now, if I was going to the Heisman Trophy and my son was up for it, at this age right now, it had been the coolest and biggest party there was, and that's exactly what it ended up being for him. I mean, how how amazing, uh, because of my athletic ability and what I was able to do on a football field, I got to give him a weekend like that. And that's, that's incredibly uh, powerful and important to me. But, uh, no, I believed I belonged there. I believed uh, uh, I deserved to win it. Um, you know, I led the nation in passing the year that Peyton Manning existed college football, right? I was an All-American, first-team All-American in a year where Peyton Manning existed. How is that even possible, right? I, don't, I, don't, I still don't understand how that was even possible because it didn't happen in high school. Like, my athletic ability wasn't rewarded. I wasn't named first-team anything in the state of Montana. And I was the best athlete that had come out of that state in, in I don't know how long. And now I was being rewarded by those who watched and were credible and and, and that was powerful for me because I thought it was deserving and uh, warranted, and uh, you know it, it, it was a good feeling. Yeah, you put it, and, and as you said, you put in you put in the work. Mm -hmm. You were putting in the work at Washington State. Um, you you got through a bunch of you know setbacks and some games that that you guys didn't win that you thought you should have won, and you persevered. I mean, you you finished just, you finished there, you know, probably as strong as you could have liked, and, and and then the next pageantry comes. Now it's the NFL. Now it's like. And I have to believe, you know, if, if I'm kind of watching vicariously through you, that all your boyhood dreams are coming true. It's like, mm -hmm. I want to get out of Montana? Check. I want to be a great starting quarterback in, in college? Check. 
I mean, I don't even know if you had on your vision board Heisman Trophy candidate, but check that box. I mean, all of these things are really happening for you. Um, it, it, does it diminish the resentment? Is there still any, is there any resentment left over from how you had gotten there? Or do you now feel that, you know, the, the, the stars have aligned and I've been working hard and I'm getting what I deserve and that's going to continue? Yeah, I'm getting what I deserve. It's going to continue. Uh, but I also, the resentment to my hometown and the people uh, was stronger than ever. And instead of taking the high road and forgiving and involving them in the journey now, right? Never, Montana had one first round draft pick um, in the NFL, I think, in 1953. A guy by the name of Ed Barker, I found this out uh, recently because I've been saying I'm the only first-round draft pick ever from the state of Montana, um, or at least, you know, in the, in the modern age. Um, and so I would be the first-round first draft pick since 1953, and instead of taking my hometown and even my state uh, of Montana along with me, by taking the high road and forgiving them for how poorly they treated me growing up, um, I doubled down on that resentment and it was like, fuck you, I told you, uh, and I'm gonna disown you. And I even did it in an article with ESPN, I, I talked about how, and, and it felt that way. It felt like Montana didn't accept me or want me, so why would I want to accept or want them? The state of Washington did. They just embraced me. Like they made me um, one of theirs, which is what I was always looking for, right? This this uh, acknowledgement of A, of how good I was, and B, that uh, they liked who I was as a person. You know, they, they, liked, they, they liked me, um, regardless of my flaws and all of that. So I felt like Washington was my home of source, those four years. And so in that process, um, you know, I disowned Montana, and and I told him to fuck off, and I told you, and uh, and I'm not going to involve you in any of this. So that resentment carried and continued to carry, and it's something I never, I, I never, I never addressed ever in my life. And and so yeah, and and you've learned, uh, I think. How powerful resentments can be when we carry them because they're just damn, they're doing it more damn. And they're taking your focus off of what's really important, you know, forgiving them, embracing them, and moving on. It changed completely. Yeah, for me, it, it ruined me and it ruined my professional career because I was constantly going back to Montana to showboat that I had all this fame and money and power and all of those things. So it, it completely took my attention off what I needed to do. And that was to work my tail off like I'd done my whole life to get there. Now it almost, it almost was the reason I needed to get to the NFL to show everybody that what I had done and sacrificed and lived through was, was exactly uh, why. And I don't think I saw anything past that. I just thought this was that, and then I just assumed that my talent would it didn't matter. Like my talent would would take me uh, to new heights, like it always had. But at that level. It's a different animal. It's just an absolutely different animal. It's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. I mean, it is a minuscule number. 27,000 ever to play the game. Um, 363 Hall of Famers ever in the 100 years of football. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard you rattle those stats off, and they're, they're eye-opening for people to, to realize how 
unique an opportunity it is to have a chance to be, let alone, you know, the the, the top one of the top picks in, in the NFL draft. And you arrived. You, you got there. And that, look, I mean, I think there's two things all of us want, right? A sense of belonging and a sense of connection to other people. And, and so Washington State gave you that. And, and San Diego wanted you, right? That city was looking forward to your arrival, man. And that was, a, that was a place that, that really, really wanted you. Yeah, they were incredibly welcoming. Um, it was immediate. Uh, they wrapped their arms around me. Um, I didn't necessarily feed, feel immediate pressure to be like a savior or anything like that. I just, I felt like uh, I was welcomed. Um, but I also, you know, had really kind of started to change in terms of the public uh, persona of, of how important I was. And I think it stemmed from, from just still having that, that resentment back home and, and showing everybody. And then we went out and won. You know, we went out and won our first two starts, uh, which hadn't been done by a rookie quarterback since John Elway in 1983. So it was like immediate success. Peyton had a real difficult time those first couple of weeks. They were 0-2. He threw a bunch of picks. It was, you know, in my mind, I was I was winning at everything, right? Winning at the, the battle against the guy that everybody pitted us against throughout the draft, uh, winning in life, uh, and just rubbing it in the face of everybody back home in Montana, like, you know, I told you so. I told you so, and I'm doing it. And then adversity hits. Yeah, really hard, right? Uh, my NFL moment. Every rookie has one, a rookie moment where you just you get introduced to the NFL. And that's what happened in Kansas City. I was in the hospital all week with a staph infection. I was committed to playing. Um, I remember my mom asking me not to play. Um, and of course, I wasn't listening to my mother around football and things like that. Um, and I went out and tried to play, and it ended up being an incredible monsoon rainstorm. Both teams were awful. Um, the defense for Kansas City was was so good. Arrowhead was crazy fun, atmosphere to play in, and I had the worst game of my life. Right, just the worst game of my life. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. And when I get embarrassed and I get humiliated, I lash out. I don't. There's no introspective look at it there. It's, it's, you know, your fault. I shouldn't have played. You made me play. Uh, the media's are assholes. I mean, it just was. The fingers come out. All the pointing fingers come out. And I always tell people when I talk about these things that life isn't fair. It's how you deal with it that matters. And is that formula that we don't control events, we don't control outcomes, we always control our response. But you've learned everything's personal. Montana was personal. Proving myself is personal. I'm, I'm, I'm here to prove myself to everybody. And look, it's a part of competitive. I mean, being, hot, being hospitalized and, and overcoming that staph infection. I mean, smart or not, there's a competitive part of that, which is I'm an NFL quarterback yeah, for the first time, and I got to play. I wasn't not going to play. Yeah. Right? This, was, this was my Michael Jordan flu game moment, right? But you, but you weren't not going to have setbacks. And, and I think one of the things that people aren't prepared for is adversity and, and having an adversity tolerance and learning lessons in it. But, but it was personal for you. And I also didn't know how to deal with failure yeah. in, a, in a positive and healthy way. Like I didn't see it as an opportunity to do it better the next time. I simply saw it as a failure. And it was only black and white for me. There wasn't any gray to it, nuance. And so the humiliation of that game... Uh, and then how I responded the next day with a reporter um, changed the trajectory of my career completely because of how I dealt with it. Not because of how I played, 
but because of how I dealt with the failure on the field, in the public eye, all of it. And I yelled at a reporter. It was early on with the internet. Viral videos had really not existed. And this one would characterize me and, and become like a caricature of who I, would, who I was seen as. Because um, I yelled at this reporter and somebody videotaped it from the corner of the locker room. And, and I looked like a petulant child, you know. And it, it, it stayed with me my entire career. It just did, and it started the, the narrative that uh, I'm a problem, I'm uh, a head case, um, and I recoiled into the defiant nature with the media again. And um, you know, my dad helped me with an apology the next day, and I just was dismissive with it. I've seen the video of me just reading it, kind of crumpling it up and throwing it in my locker. I didn't want to give it, you know, I was forced to, in my mind, to have to give it instead of just owning, owning my part in all of it. But that, that, that word didn't even exist to me at that time. Like owning what I'm rich, I'm famous, I'm powerful. I'm a starting quarterback in the NFL. You're a piece of shit. Why should I care about any of that? And that's, that was my mindset. You know, it was, there was just a constant, um, anger, uh, that fueled me in everything I did. And I think there's a, just a, a fine line, a razor, razor's edge on, you know, a lead athlete, an asshole, and it just you just teeter on it until ultimately you fall on one side of it because you can't. Now, if I go out against the Giants the next week and throw four touchdowns, you can be the biggest asshole in the world. If you're winning and you're a stud, it doesn't matter. I went out through four interceptions. We got beat. I had a Make-A-Wish Foundation infomercial on the big screen during the game, and it gets booed. I went from one of the most beloved individuals in San Diego two weeks ago to now one of the most vilified and hated. That's trauma. And I, I hated to say that, that, that that was trauma. I never believed that until later in life when I was diagnosed with PTSD because I just, I thought PTSD was your combat veteran or, or, you know, no one can define your trauma, what that is. You know, I go out in public, I get spit on, I would get taunted, I would get things thrown at me, I would it, I'd have a, a, a media van following me everywhere I went. It was, it was, uh, I was not ready for it. I didn't understand it. I felt, uh, I felt like I was a victim and, and I wasn't, but that's the way I, I rationalized it with me. And that was the start. And I don't remember another positive thing the rest of my NFL career. Yeah, I was struck when I heard you say that. My NFL career really ended after my, almost after my third game. Because of how I dealt with it. Yeah. Not because of how I played. I would go out and have games where I threw for 300 yards and three touchdowns, and it didn't matter. It didn't bring me the joy. Um, I was always fighting uphill because of, you know, still to this day, people, uh, when they hear my name, they think, oh, yeah, the guy that yelled at, all the, yelled at the reporters. Like, that's what I did. I did it once. And it just is this thing that, that hangs over your head and sticks with you the rest of your life because um, that's what happens. That's when a story is being written. Uh, if you don't do something 180 degrees differently to correct that, um, it sticks with you. And it did the rest of my NFL career. Yeah, and, and, and you, I mean, you spent what, five years in, in the NFL. You, you played for the Cowboys. You, I think you played for Tampa. You had a great situation in Tampa after the Chargers let you go. I remember you were on your, I think you were on your honeymoon. honeymoon yeah, when, when you got the, the facts that the Chargers had, had let you go. And, and you were excited to go play at Tampa. I mean, there's lots of these 
this kind of destination is easy to like, I've, now I've got the right situation. I can put that behind yeah, geography change, right? Yeah, and, 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 and a good coach with Tony Dungy and a good team. And I will say that, that my next three stops in Tampa Bay, Dallas, and in Seattle, I had figured out how to be a professional. Like, I, I had figured it out. I had been mentored by Jim Harbaugh my last year in, in San Diego. And once I got to Tampa Bay, uh, that defense kind of took me under their wing. You know, Rondé Barber and Derek Brooks and Shelton Quarles, all those guys just kind of put their arms around me, Booger. And I was I was one of the crew. I was one of the, the group. But also, on the offensive side, we had Keyshawn Johnson. And he was an elite player. He needed elite quarterback play. And, you know, he would just kind of look... You know, this dude was the first, you know, first round draft pick. The talent wasn't there anymore. I wrecked my wrist in uh, in San Diego, and uh, it would pop out a joint. So I, w I wasn't the talent that I was before. I had learned how to be a professional, but I also still had that ego around. If I'm not the starting quarterback, then what's the point? And so when I wasn't named the starter in Tampa, I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to take a pay cut for you to stay here, so just trade me. And I went to Dallas, and I started a few games there, and then they were bringing along a young kid named Quincy Carter. And I said, well, you know, if you're not going to start me, then trade me. And then he did. They traded me to, to Seattle. And while I was there during camp, it was Matt Hasselbeck and Trent Dilfer vying for the, the, the starting job. And I most likely was going to be, if not the backup, probably the third string guy. And that, for me, I didn't see as a developmental time to learn from Mike Holmgren. I saw it as a complete punch in the face. Uh, and I was having and dealing with incredible mental illness around my depression and all of those things that I didn't fully understand at the time. And instead of feeling like a failure um, and just uh, and fighting through the adversity and being a backup and maybe being a backup for the next 15 years, who knows, making millions and millions of dollars to play football, I said, I'm done and I quit. I'm, I'm tired of being beat up physically, mentally, and and I figured I could just disappear, and no one would care, and no one would know. But when you're when you're drafted alongside arguably the greatest ever play, Peyton Manning, and uh, and you know the the evolution of the internet, and and failing at, at such a high level, it was such a crash and burn scenario. Um, my name was never going to go away, and I didn't fully, fully recognize that or understand that. And and you talked a little earlier about shame and and, and how you know, that warm blanket of shame that must that just must be setting in because all the things that you were trying to avoid now here now here they are over. You're starting to see yourself like you thought you were trying to avoid other people seeing yourself, and the truth is all surrounding you. And 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 I, think I don't think people understand. You really didn't you didn't really pick up any prescription drugs. Well, you're in the NFL at all. This was all kind of that whole persona of, you know, when I get somewhere, I'll be okay. I'm here to prove things. You had that ego fueling you and that anger fueling you and that resentment fueling you. Everything was personal. You took everything personal. I looked, at, I looked at people that used drugs and drank alcohol as, like, morally corrupt. I always had. All the way back to high school where I'd show up to parties with seven, uh, six packs of seven up. Um, and I just thought I was better than you. And then later in college, I became a, a little bit of a binge drinker simply because I could get outside myself, less inhibitions, talk to women, kind of let that, that big man on campus persona really live out loud. And same thing at the NFL, right? I would go out and, and drink my face off with friends, and I just, it, it made me feel like King Kong, right? That's, and that's what I was looking for because I didn't feel that way all the, 
the rest of the time. Uh, I was introduced to Vicodin and opiates because of my orthopedic surgeries throughout my playing career. So it was never an issue where I, where I abused it. I, I liked it. I knew it worked, right? I had physical pain. They gave me these. It took away that. I didn't feel that physical pain. Um, and then I stopped taking them uh, uh, when I rehabbed my, my, my injury and competition, which was that drug, uh, was re, uh, reinserted into my life and that was fine. Didn't even think about them ever again. Uh, wasn't something that, that, uh, that gave, gave a second thought to. And uh, when I was, when I had quit uh, the NFL, I was lost, you know, purpose and identity was so wrapped up in being a football player my entire life. I had no idea who I was as a person now. And not only now am I not a football player anymore, but in the eyes of many and how it's told through the media is I'm a failed football player. So how do you deal with that? And also I was dealing with a ton of depression, right? I was having a real hard time getting out of bed, uh, felt lazy. Um, and, uh, and sad all the time, and I didn't understand why, and I didn't seek any help or anything like that. And so uh, what gave me some juice every now and again was going to a place like Las Vegas for a fight where it felt like the adrenaline in the, in the arena was similar to what game day felt like. Um, you know, I was treated like I was important there by the casinos, and, um, and I got to go and, and kind of, mingle with that celebrity that I was in before, uh, but now uh, was no longer like in it. And uh, we were there to fight one night and they were introducing celebrities in the audience and, and, and now it's Dr. Dre and like Tiger Woods and Charles Barkley and the arena just erupted in applause. And I always was fearful of I knew when I accepted these tickets at ringside that was, there was a quid pro quo, like they would announce you were in the audience and things like that. But I was, uh, and I wondered why they would do it when they knew I would probably not get a welcome response because they don't care. They, yeah. they want reaction uh, either way. And so they announced my name in the audience and the whole MGM brand just, just booed and hissed. And it's not like that hadn't happened before. And you play football in an opposing team stadium, that's what it is, but you wear this armor and you have this helmet on and all of these things that go with it. In this moment, I heard, not only are you an awful football player, but uh, you, you are a terrible human being. That's what my addict brain heard. Oh, you were in depression. You were, you, you, you were lost, your identity was, I mean, there's a lot of, the storm clouds were building up pretty good. Yeah, this was, this was a, a trigger. And then it was, um, and then it was, the fuel was added when an acquaintance of mine offered me some, some Vicodin that night. And if you don't know Vicodin, I'm, I'm a recovering opioid addict and alcoholic myself. And so if you don't know this, opioids work a lot better on emotional pain than they do on physical pain. Um, you know, you take those and that feeling of it's all going away. It, it's, like a, it's like a warm blanket that just covers your entire emotional being. And, and I'm sure you got some pretty good relief when you took that Vicodin. They hadn't gotten before taking Vicodin for your injuries. Yeah, it was a, uh, I was going to parties that, that there were Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champions and where I always felt less than and judged. And instead, I didn't feel any of it. I mean, I didn't feel anything. And I think that's what I had been searching for for so long was just not to feel anything. And this was the answer. 
And that's what started the, I think the next eight years of my life, chasing that feeling of not feeling anything. Um, and it all started that night. Now I don't look back on it like, oh, this is what sent me over the edge. I was already going on that. It would have eventually gotten to that point no matter what. But now I had, I had an acquaintance who, who could, who could give me these pills. And, and then I started going to doctors and because I had x-rays and, and the fact that I got beat up for a living for the last 10 years of my life and, and I could manipulate them with signing autographs for their kids and things like that, you know, doctors at the time didn't understand fully because they don't go through the process in medical school around addiction or anything like that. And, you know, a, a prescription for 90 pills with like five refills, you know, things like that. And away I went. My life became a, you know, became a hermit in my own, you know, 5,000 square foot palatial estate overlooking the ocean in San Diego, drapes drawn, uh, and just, just getting high and not feeling anything, not feeling that failure, less than judgment, any of it. Uh, my wife at the time, uh, I gave her bunch of money to go build a dance studio. So now her her next chapter after kind of being attached to me in the, in the first chapter, she could now go do that. But I think what I was really doing was I was just getting her out of the house. Like, go do this, work your tail off, because I know you will. And, and uh, you know, in my, in my eyes, I was just like, what she was for anyway was a, a pretty girl on my arm. There wasn't any substantial relationship there other than what other people thought and that's the subjective nature or, or objective nature of which uh, of of how i viewed relationships with women there was no intimacy ever and so i could send her away still had this beautiful woman on my arm i still was rich i was still famous but now this is my life just the constant you know numbing of of, of the mental illness uh, that's what that's what the next eight years were about and, and no one can imagine, and I know you couldn't have imagined at the time, I mean, you know, for some reason, you know, you, you have, the, you have a, the, the gift of a, of a great personality, you know, you, have a, you, you connect with people, you do it now for, for a living, and the people around you, they generally feel the authenticity that you are, but we have the ability to manipulate a lot, you know, when we're drug-seeking and doctor-shopping and getting ourselves out of trouble, it's like we're able to keep, you know, and even for that eight years, you know, as you're feeding this addiction, and you're just you're just juggling a bunch of plates, keeping everybody away. Keep you know, I don't want anybody to find out what's really going on. And it's fucking exhausting. I mean, your central nervous system is on tilt like <laughs> constantly. And to think of all the rabbit trails you went down in terms of what you told people, this, that, and the other. How do you keep things straight? Uh, I don't know if I was great, as as you would say. I feel like I was very bad. I, I feel like people knew it all the time. I feel like I just had blinders on, and people were looking at me going. This guy's a wreck. This guy's a dumpster fire, and uh, and I thought I was I thought I was, you know, putting up a, putting on a great show, and I, I suppose it had to be for for the length of time, right? I would go and, you know, get a job in coaching and and coach kids and steal from them, and and uh, and no one figured that out for a while. I mean. I felt like it was a mess. I mean, I was a mess. I was I was always a mess. I was never a respectable human being at that time. I cannot believe I was able to coach these kids or these kids were even looked up to me um, during that process. But, um, you know, I found a way to you know, stumble my way through it until I ultimately um, 
you know, became so frantic around not getting my meds to to self-medicate that I had to become a criminal. Um, was so, that your first run with the law in, in, in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. I'd never even, I think the most I'd ever had in terms of a run with the law is getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. And, and I also never really had a run with the law there either because I went and uh, into the office after a, a mom had relayed to my boss that her son had called and complained about how Coach Leaf, the guy that, that's supposed to protect to their kids, was was taking advantage of them and stealing their pills. And uh, I got brought in and instead of firing me too, I think this was an enabling behavior on the part of my boss because he really liked me. Of course. Instead of firing me, he gave me the opportunity to resign which it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but later in life, if you're up for another job, if you left a job voluntarily rather than being told you're fired and get out, that's, that's a different thing for your resume. And a different consequence, right? We need to just, I just resigned, I'm not gonna work here anymore versus, I got, my, I got fired yep. because I was doing something wrong. Yeah, and, uh, but no one would have known about it, but that the mother, of course, um, not only called my boss, but I, uh, she sent an uh, anonymous email to to ESPN, and I'm not I'm not I'm not mad at her at all for doing that. In fact, it probably helped save my life. Um, it just was it just became national news. When I when I fuck up, it's national news. It's not localized or it's not in the shadows where only your family members know. Like it's the done and done 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 banner on Sports Center and. And even reaching to other networks like CNN and things like I mean, it's just it's a it's a, a national story. So that's what it became. And I the ju- the judgment like if you get booed at an arena, imagine getting booed and pointed at and told you're a piece of shit and shamed by the entire world. I can't. I mean, I remember when I went to drop my kids off at elementary school after I went into recovery. I was like, you know, everyone's. You know, you feel that. To feel that in the night, I couldn't even imagine it. I, couldn't, I don't think anybody could. And, uh, and so I became suicidal, right? I was like, why am I, what, what, what's the purpose? There's no purpose. I'm just going to be ridiculed and laughed at and told I'm a piece of shit. So I'm just, I, I don't need to be here. But I didn't, know how, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't either have the ability. Um, and that would be my first. And, and there was no running with the law. The law didn't become involved. Um, my it was a national story, so I had to address it. My family flew down. They said, "Okay, this is the we're, we're finding the treatment facility." Just when you went to Canada. And this is when I went to Canada for uh, for treatment. And I would spend thirty days there. This would be the first time I'd be introduced to anything to do with with recovery. I always thought it was where the bad people went. I didn't realize like this is the best possible place anybody could have to work on yourself. When will we ever work on ourselves for 30 straight days? It just doesn't exist unless we're forced to. And and then I stayed in the transitional home and I worked with a sponsor. I mean, started doing everything that you are told to do to find that. And I started feeling better about myself. Um, and about six months in to that recovery, uh, six months clean for the first time in, in what, eight years. Um, that's when the law became involved. I was indicted in the state of Texas. And 
um, and I had to go face those charges. And the law around like prescription drug use is so odd because there's not like drug stings, there's not like you're not, uh, you know, brought down and, and thrown to the ground and, and put handcuffs on and arrested that way. They were just like, okay, come down, turn yourself in, bond out, and then you'll go to court. It's just so surreal that our American justice system, I, it's so weird. But because I was in Canada and I had to travel back to Texas to turn myself in, my lawyer said he confirmed with the district attorney about my, my warrants being removed so I could travel freely down to, you know, there was so, supposed to be a, uh, a relationship between my attorney and, and the DA that, but I mean, if you're a DA out there, you got to look at a criminal as a guy that will do anything and everything to avoid prosecution. So why would he do it? I, and I don't know why how naive I was to think that he was going to pull the warrant so I could travel freely or that my lawyer believed that he was willing to do that. But I was so naive. I got in my car and I drove. I was driving down to Seattle to fly from Seattle to, to Texas to turn myself in. And I pulled up to the border there between Canada and the United States and handed her my passport. And before I knew it, I could see in my rear view and my side mirror, uh, like SWAT team with machine guns surrounding my car. And then all of a sudden she was gone. She had closed the, the kiosk window and they were yelling at me to get out and get on the ground. And so that that was my first introduction to law enforcement in my life. Machine guns pointed at me and being told to get on the ground and then a knee in my neck and my back and handcuffs on my, and then, I mean, by the time I got to Bellingham for the quick arraignment, it was already all over the news, everywhere. In fact, so much so that one of the slimy lawyers in town in Bellingham was already at the jail Thank God he was a slimy lawyer because he showed up, got me arraigned within like 20 minutes um, and bonded out, you know, right after. And, uh, you know, it just, it was such a, such a shit show. And, and then they, they, you bond, they bond you out. You're just, you're just free again. Like, you just, like, okay, now I'm going to go do what I was doing in the first place. Go get on a flight to go to Texas to turn myself in. And, uh, and so that was that day. And I remember just how emotionally exhausted I was when I landed in Houston and I was crying. And yeah, your mom got you a first class. She got me a first class. You were so relieved. I was just, it was just like the littlest thing. That yeah, was. of course. And, uh, cause I knew I was going to be comfortable and I had a lot of anxiety around flying because I'm big, I'm six, seven. And just, it's just, I need to know where I'm sitting. I'll have panic attacks. I really have in the past. Like I've completely canceled flights. I've been on a flight. And I'm like in my seat and it's just so uncomfortable and I've claustrophobia and I'll just, I'll get up and walk off the plane and, and catch a new one with a different seat. Um, but I want get there, they bring me in through the back door, I get a mugshot and I'm gone. Like this is the justice, I just, it just seems so like fake. And then I never have to deal with anything. My lawyer negotiates a, a plea agreement where I go in front of the judge and I plead guilty to these and I get probation and pay a fine and I'm just like, I don't. I'm sober though at the time. If I wasn't sober at the time, I don't know how I deal with the day 
with with a SWAT team pulling guns on me and everything. What would be the perfect ending to that night? Is forgetting about everything from that day and just numbing myself out. But you didn't do that that night. No, I didn't do that that night. I, I dealt with it, dealt with it in a healthy, positive way. And so there was, and I continued to do so uh, through the process. But um, pleading guilty to these things, even though I wasn't sentenced to anything, but probation, uh, Canada wouldn't let me back in. And I had found a job and just everything. And I was re- you know, relegated back to my hometown where I was supposed to be the hero and everything, but I wasn't. I was, a, I was, uh, I was the demon. And you learned, I think you learned a, lesson, a valuable lesson that, that we all need to know, which is recovery is a, is a process of daily practice. It's a process of action. If you get away from the process and the action, then you leave yourself susceptible to it. And I think a lot of us get ourselves set up to get through big events. You got through the arraignment, you got, you got through, and I did this all sober. It's like, if I could do this, you know, even though you weren't going to meetings or maybe not connected to your recovery group that was up in Toronto because you've been displaced, there's this feeling of if I can get through this, and I just did get through this, that maybe I'm okay. And I didn't fully understand the trigger and the trauma of going back to my hometown was going to be. It is the absolute most toxic place for me at all. I mean, so much trauma uh, and triggering uh, aspects exist there everywhere I look. People I see, the judgment, the fear, and so I was back there, you know, and uh, I was broke, and I didn't have any work, any of it, and I was out working for a friend of mine on a ranch, and it was always, you know, so I didn't know the history around like ranch accidents, like terrible ranch accidents. And I was cutting, cutting uh, hay and, and bailing with this tractor, and I had to jump start it to, to get it going. And I had it in gear on accident, and it literally like rolled over my back leg, and I hyperextended my right one that ended up blowing my ACL out, and it was incredibly painful. I was taken to the emergency room. We were transparent with the doctor about my past, but I mean, you're in so much pain there while you're there, they give it to you and everything like that. Then I went and had surgery on the knee and they gave my mom and dad the pills. And before I knew it, uh, when they were giving them to me, I would cheek them and then put them aside until I gathered enough of them where I could really feel it, I felt like, and I started abusing them again. And then that became the whole the whole drug seeking, and then I manipulated that doctor forever um, until I couldn't do that anymore, and uh, and there would be another there would be another rehab. Uh, there would, you're good at rehab, right? You're I'm good. really good. At rehab. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good at rehab. I, I you know you take the drug out of my system yeah, and you put me in an environment where I can be uh, where you give me assignments and structure and and. Um, self-reflection and accountability in a sober situation, I'm really good at that. You know, for the longest time, I thought maybe I just, maybe I just live in a rehab center. That's why I, when I got out of, got out of prison, I, I went and worked in one. That's right. You know, transcend. So it, it, uh, I, I would do another stint in rehab. I get out flourishing. Uh, I get sick. I don't understand why. Turns out it's a brain tumor. 
Um, I go get it operated on in emergency surgery. Um, I never really bring this up because I always feel like the tumor is like an excuse. Um, I have to do radiation because they couldn't remove it all. And during the radiation process, I started losing my hair and I was sick all the time. And the doctor saw how achy and everything I was and he offered me some pain medication. And instead of telling him about my past, I just, again, I felt like a victim and I thought that everybody that's going through what I'm going through right now gets this, deserves this. Why am I any different? Well, the why I'm, I'm different is because I'm a drug addict and I can't take just one. Yeah, that's the common, I mean, look, whether it was, it's not the NFL, it's how I dealt with it. It's not the brain tumor, it's how I dealt with it. I mean, all these things, people have brain tumors, they have failed careers, you know, I think when it happens at the public level, with the, the, the shame and the anger and the resentment. But yeah, when you have a coping skill of taking a prescription drug to emotional pain, brain tumor, hang nail, whatever, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna seek that, that old friend. So I liked how it made me feel. And I still felt like a failure, right? I mean, I, I, ever since I left the NFL, I felt like a failure. So, and now it was even worse because now everybody knew I was this drug addict and, um, and I had started kind of telling my story a little bit. Because when you get into AA, that's that's really what it's about. It's about, you know, giving in to keep it mentality. And so now, again, there's a pedestal about, oh, this guy's, you know, has some a bit of redemption in his life. He's, he's helping people. It's so then you then if you fall off the wagon or 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 do something wrong, you, you definitely don't want anybody to know it. That doctor gave me the pills on December 1st, 2011. By March 30th, 2012, I was in prison. So it took four months after 18 months of sobriety because of my inability to, to you know, tell anybody uh, the truth. How important is that, to tell the truth? It's so important. Yeah. I mean... And it's hard, it's like a muscle for me. I don't, maybe you can relate to this. I had worked my dishonesty muscle so much, like building up how to lie. I mean, I started lying by the age of six because I didn't want anyone to know what was happening in my home. I just learned to lie, and I lied until I was 42. Dude, I got sober, and I was lying to car dealers about concerts I went to. Look, I just, I, my dishonesty muscle was so strong. Yeah, so I hadn't worked out my honesty muscle yet, so learning to be honest was like this new exercise for me, and it took a lot of time. And, and I found through my sobriety here over the last nine and a half years that... It's improved, yeah, that, that, that honesty muscle has changed because you're exactly right. I was still continuing to embellish or, or, or things like that. And that's why I think I waited so long to do something like the bus podcast because I wanted it to be the truth. And that's, and that's it. There was, and not, not any embellishments or anything like that, but just my honest truth. And that's why it was so easy. I think a lot of people, when you do a podcast like that, I expect to hear that I wrote it and then I sat down in a room. This is I did exactly what you and I are doing right now. I sat down in front of a microphone with my producer, Kevin Connolly, and we recorded 25 hours of content. Yeah, and it's and, and it's raw, it's real. I mean, when you when you hear you talk about the, the, the time at the border, when you hear you talk about the highs, when you hear you talk about New York, when you hear, I mean, me seeing magic, I mean, all these things are so real because it's authentic. You're not, it's just the truth of, of what you went through. And you took a little of that resentment into prison with you, as you can imagine that you spent the first and your roommate 
made a big change in your life. And I want to talk about that as, as part of your, your, your story about the resilience you learned in prison from your roommate, because for a little while in prison, you were still angry. It wasn't still... a little bit. It was, you know, I was in prison for 32 months. And how, how long of that were you still angry? That's probably 26 months of it. Until what happened? Until he, uh, my roommate confronted me one day about, it just, he, he confronted me. He told me I had my head buried in the sand and that I was an idiot and that I didn't understand the value that I had, not only for the men in there, but for when I got out, I, I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. And he was an infamous letter, right? He, he killed somebody drunk drive. Yeah. And uh, he had made amends for what he had done. He tried to better himself every single day. Didn't know if he was ever going to get out, or at least in, you know, the, in in the thirty-year sentence that he was given. And he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read learn how to read. And I had I've had many of those kind of come to Jesus moments in my life from mentors, from coaches, from family. And I just, you know, I told them all to, to go to hell. I got it. Um, I can't tell you why I went with them other than maybe the substance had been out of my system for 26 months and I was, I had a little more open-mindedness to myself at the time, but I still went, you know, begrudgingly. I remember walking down the hallway thinking, this is stupid, this isn't going to help me, doesn't even know how important I am. And the irony of the guy, <laughs> irony of the guy in, a, in a prison hallway saying, yeah. uh, doesn't even know how important I am, is it's the most asinine thing you can imagine. And we walk into this library and uh, there are these men in a place where you're supposed to show zero vulnerability because it can get you hurt or killed or, you know, come up to me and say, hey, Ryan, I'm, I, I, I need help here. I, I can't read. Can you help me? I told you this earlier, never seen or heard another man do right. that in my lifetime. So freak me out a little bit. I'm, what, are, what are you doing, man? Um, and uh, so I started helping and I came back the next day. And the day after that, and a week later, and a couple of weeks passed, and I realized I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was talking to family because I hadn't talked to anybody or, or was or was any bit personable uh, those 26 months up to that point. And I realized that it was because I was being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. And I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays was me being of service. What a, what a silly concept. And uh, so I continue to do it. And the reason I say it continued, once I figured that out, that doesn't mean everything's fixed. Like consistency above, uh, above everything is what's important in, in recovery or anything you're doing. You, you can't go to the gym one day and the next day you, you wake up and you look like the rock. You know, that's, that's not how it works. It's about consistency. It's about showing up, about all those things. Uh, after the class was over from teaching, I, I started uh, donating my time as the, the substance abuse counselor TA while in prison there and ultimately um, applied for parole and uh, was granted it. And on December 3rd, 2012, sorry, December 3rd, 2014, uh, I walked out of prison only two people there to pick me up with my mom and dad who unconditionally and that word unconditional is a true word there was to no condition that would stop them from loving me and trying to make things better for me were there to pick me up I had nothing I had no money I had no prospects I had no job uh, no place to stay 
luckily my family had a, a couch downstairs and a, and a basement for me to sleep on, which is much more than a lot of people get when they walk out of prison. Uh, and I knew that what I had learned in there was the driving factor and all the hope that I had when I walked out because there was just nothing. Like, I work for the ESPN, Disney Corporation now, and they weren't waiting there to hire me when I got out. Right? I find it so I find it so amazing and, and, and really interesting that you know that all these other points that were low, you know, being imprisoned, having cavity searches, and 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 all the hopeless feelings you must have had to finally get out and feel. Despite all the wreckage, I mean, all the wreckage is there. There's no money. The fame's gone. You're not, but you felt a little bit of hope. I felt a little bit of hope. I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't. I didn't know what was driving me because the moment I got in the car and we were driving back to Great Falls and we we're in the outskirts of town and I was seeing the tri all the triggers and things like that. I'm like, like nothing's changed. And then my local local hometown newspaper ran a cartoon in the paper uh, of a caricature of me, um, stating. Lock up your medicine cabinets, everybody. Ryan Leaf's out of prison. My hometown newspaper. Mama Leaf was having. Oh, no, she had none of that. <laughs> she went. She went. Uh, took that it. that editor down. They had to print an apology. I mean, it was an absolute. That that. But that's that's how I grew up. I I was told how bad I was at all times. And a. To be honest with you. It wasn't a lie. I mean, I was probably if 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 you're home if. If you're listening to this and you owned a home in Great Falls, Montana in 2010, 11, uh, and 12, and you have missing medication, I was probably in your house. So, so there's some truth to it, right? Yeah. You don't have to do that. You don't. You don't have to kick anybody when they're down. Especially when they're trying to get up. And, and so the lessons I've heard, humility, service, honesty, and consistency. So to go from penniless, living on your parents' couch to the full life you have today. And the full life you have today, you know, besides being a sober dad and, and husband and, and, and the things that you do broadcasting-wise, um, I think you realize that you're a good person that did some bad things. You're not a bad person. Well, I think that's the difference between shame and guilt, right? And, and I ask that question a lot when I'm speaking. Do you understand what shame is in comparison to guilt? And, and most people don't understand that. Like, shame is, is you believe that you're a bad person. And guilt is you believe you did a bad thing. And I think that was a, a huge part of my healing. And healing doesn't happen in a straight line, right? It's just, it's not just this, right? There's ups and downs. There is fits and stops. Um, it, it's what leads to my thought process about how we're all the same, how we're all these flawed human beings trying to be better every day. There is that. And when healing doesn't happen, exactly how you want it you have to be understanding and compassionate about yourself and not shame yourself but understand that you know when you're dishonest or you lie about something the difference is you're more self-aware you make amends for it immediately you're not it doesn't it's not it's so incredibly overwhelming to look another person in the eye and go hey i did this i'm sorry is there anything i can do to make up for it it's just something i wouldn't have done my whole life until i was in recovery or until i was in real recovery um and, and that was, you know, it was all surrounded or, uh, around being of service to others. It had, from this point on, it had to be about everybody else other than myself. And that's what allowed for the humility part of it. And I believe humility is fully understanding that you are comfortable with who you see in the mirror. That's what humility is. Humility isn't 
thinking of yourself less because you're still the more, most important individual in this conversation, in, this, in your story. Um, because if you're not the best possible version of yourself, you're, you're going to be worthless to anybody else. So there's a selfish nature to recovery, um, and the humility side of it is, is fully understanding who you are and being okay with it. And I'm okay with the guy I see in the mirror. I know I'm flawed, and that's okay. And it also allows me to be in the public eye once again, because it's something I didn't think I was going to do when I got out of prison. But be in the public eye, be sober, and have all that wreckage behind me for ammunition from other people uh, and be okay with it. Because I'm self-deprecating about it, that doesn't cost me anything. I don't take myself very seriously, even though it's a very serious subject. I don't take myself very seriously. And I've owned everything I've done. I've absolutely owned it to the upteenth um, uh, percentage or whatever. And I'm accountable for it. So you don't, you don't have the ammunition anymore. I've taken that power away. You want to call me a bust? Yeah. So what? That's, that's the name of my podcast. You know, I, I, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't sit in the house with the shades around in April anymore. You, nope. you, 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 I mean, I've, I've watched the way you carry yourself. I work April, it. Man. I work it. it now. And, uh, it's just like working a program, right? It's the same thing. You just, you hit, you, you face it head on and understand like, also I have different perspective, right? I've laid on a concrete slab for three years of my life. So when I lay my head down on my bed at night and, and I'm constantly just saying, oh, I love my bed. I'm so grateful for my bed. And my wife, she's just, she's so sick and tired. She's like, I get it. I get it. You like, you like our bed because she doesn't have the perspective of, of where, I, where I slept for three years. Oh, and how important gratitude is as a, as a mental conditioning exercise for us every day is yep. to just not get caught up in the trappings of what we should be or could be and be grateful for who we are. Because I agree with you, and I'll tell you this, I could pass a lot of tests when I got sober. I, I had the family test, I had the career test, but I could not pass the look in the mirror test. And, and if you want to pass a test in, in, in a true nature of self-acceptance, see if you can stay with the mirror for a few minutes. And if you got to look away, you got something you got to work on. Yeah. And there's still, I mean, there's still days where, like, you know, relationships are... I understand fully now how relationships take down a ton of people's sobriety. Because you are emotionally invested in something, and there's 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 a purpose to it, right? And especially when you're vulnerable enough to to be that person with somebody else, um, emotion is involved, and it's difficult. And and you know, I, I and especially when you get into relationships, you find yourself repeating past behavior or old behavior or past uh, patterns of behavior that I had with like the likes of my mom um, in particular, where I just, I would not, I, I'd lie, I'd have a lie of omission with her, not tell her something because I felt like it made me look poor or it would disappoint. And, and what I didn't realize, and she has told me my whole life in our relationship, my, my wife and I, is that like, I'm everything to her. I'm not going to say or do anything that's going to disappoint her like I felt it was with my, my mother or anybody else. So, the, like I said, it's been fits and starts with her. Relationships are difficult. Being a new father is incredibly difficult. You know, I, I have a good story, but I also am fearful of, of the DNA aspect of all this and, sure. and how, you know, what I'm going to do in those moments. Um, because, you know, once they've let, placed them in your arms, you're just like, okay. Nothing ever is going to be about me again. It's going to be about him. And uh, he's never going to want or need or 
of anything. But there's something. Because he's going to scrape his knee. He's going to fall down. Yeah. He's going to have his set. Right. right. Not down his front two teeth already. Right. He looks like a hobo until he gets his permanent teeth. Oh, man. It's, it, first of all, I know that you had a grind, you know, the, coming off the Super Bowl and, and, and all the things that you've been doing. And just, you know, when I text you, remind you to come up on Wednesday. We're going to play some golf and record. You're like, yeah, I'll be there, man. I just, I so appreciate what you do. I know the message that you carry is strong. Um, for people that are listening, you know, I'll, I'll end with this, the contrast of the last time we had a chance to play golf. The guy we were playing golf was said, man, you were so good in the league, man. I just wish you had a 16. I think he said something like, I wish you just had a long 16-year career. I could watch you play. And you're like, yeah, me too. And then we got down to lunch after we played, and, and somebody that you had helped get into treatment was texting me to thank you and let me know they were doing okay. And I was like, you know, it might have been great to have a 16-year career and, and, and all that you might have had from that, but what a testament to who you are today that you get a text like that to wrap up your day from a healthy yeah, it's, I, I say it a lot, you know, if I would have had that career and never really addressed my personal issues, would I have the impact that I'm having now, having gone through everything? Because I think I'm just so much more relatable because everybody looks at me and they're like, oh yeah, I fuck up too. I'm like that guy. Uh, I relate to him. I played professional football and I was a quarterback and I look at Tom Brady sometimes and I'm just like, dude's perfect. I cannot relate to that guy. And we both played in the NFL, <laughs> so it's 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 weird uh, how how it's defined me, but it's given me a new purpose. I mean, it, there really is a, a you know a pep in my step when I wake up every morning, and like I like I'm a morning person. Like I'm up at six every morning. My wife looks at me like I'm insane because she says she can't function unless she has coffee, and I'm like. <laughs> Well, that's your drug choice. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go. Off you go. Uh, but my day is, you know, I'm rolling. You know, I, I love I love not being hungover. I love not being sick. I love not having to have the fear of, of, of drug seeking the entire day to, to get that fixed. It's just the peaceful, chaotic, unchaotic life is, is what I was searching for for the longest time and now have, so. Oh, it's amazing. So for the people that are out there that are suffering, they're, they're, they're listening and they're stuck, they're in a spot, whether it's with addiction or depression or anxiety or a situation in a relationship, you know, what's, what's kind of the, the, the top one or two things that you want to share with them about your journey that they might be able to draw into right now? I, it's incredibly, it, it's all about surrender and acceptance. That's, I mean, that's, that's my, my biggest thing. And when I'm talking to somebody who, who reaches out and says, I need help, which is a huge first step, my question to them is always, you know, what are you willing to do to be sober? And if your answer to me isn't everything, then there really isn't anything I can do for you. I can tell you what I've done. But when I'm done telling you, you're going to say that's just too much. It's too overwhelming. And I'm like, if you put that much time and effort into drug seeking and, and beha behavior to do all that stuff, if you put half of that effort into to recovery, you'll be successful. Um, so that's the biggest thing. You have to surrender completely. And, that, and when I say surrender, that means when you're told to do something, that you do it. You, your self-will is removed from this conversation for at least the time being. I, I, then, I then developed a, a board of directors, a group of five individuals who have mentored me, who I trust implicitly, who have a ton of recovery, and, and whose lives I want. And they're, they're, they sit on my board. And ultimately, I'm the chairman because I have to make the decision. But I go to them, and I ask them, uh, in the situations I'm in, what I should do. And uh, 
and I, and I go with the consensus. You know, if it's three to two or four to one or five to zero, that's where I go. And if it's the other way around, it's the same thing. You know, I, I don't make the proper decision. So that's what surrender is. And then accepting help. Once you do surrender, and what's placed in front of you is the help, which is usually treatment, uh, sponsorship, uh, therapy, all these things there. You do it. You do it. Everything that's placed in front of you, that's what surrender and acceptance is. And that's the, that's the most definitive way I can tell you. And it just takes what it takes. Uh, it may take years or the promises, which is uh, granted to you if you find recovery. It may take, uh, it, it may take uh, less time, right? Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will materialize. And that is the God honest truth. If you work for them and nothing's for free, it's a, it's, it, life is about action. And, and man, thank you so much. I, I really encourage everybody for the, for the deep dive, the, the 10 episodes that, that Ryan's put out are, are really raw and authentic. Everything else that you're doing with the, the NFL the legends, uh, continuing to, to pursue your passion of, of broadcasting and being a dad. Uh, and just thanks for taking the time to come in, man. You bet. My pleasure. Keep doing awesome. what you're doing. All right, pal. Thanks.